Welcome to the Bethel Church Podcast. Each week you'll be able to check in for our messages from Sunday and other material. We hope that our messages encourage you in your walk in daily faith with Jesus. Make sure to check out our website, BethelStratford.org. you, um, as I was studying through and reading Zechariah, my little nerd heart was all a flutter. So you know when Pastor Kristen's here, you're going to get a lot of information. So can I just ask, how many of you like to watch crime TV shows? Or like Murdoch Mysteries, or you've watched National Treasure? Some of you? Really good. So when I was studying, I felt like that moment in TV shows where there's like the pegboard and all of the connecting incidents or, or clues and stuff are all over the place. And let me tell you, it's always the thrill of the chase that gets you, right? And solving the mystery is just so satisfying. Anybody relate to that? Okay, some of you. Thank you so much. So for me, that's what reading Zechariah was like. And so before I get really into this thing, let's pray. Father God, I thank you for the opportunity that we have to be here to gather in your presence and learn about you and your goodness. Jesus, I pray that today, um, you know, you're already here, you're in this place, your Holy Spirit is moving, but Father, I want to hide myself behind your cross. This is not to glorify me, God, but this is all to honor and glorify you and to edify your people. So Father, would you start to stir in people's hearts and their spirits so that they would be receptive to your word today? Amen. Okay, so I'm going to share with you some of the clues or the important facts and realizations I had while I was preparing today's message, okay? Sounds good? Thumbs up all around? Okay, I see a couple. All right, really good. All right, so Zechariah was both a prophet and a priest, so he was doing double duty here as he ministered to Jerusalem. And his name, Zechariah, means Jehovah remembers. Can you say Jehovah remembers? Zechariah means? Very good. All right. And so also, my friend isn't here today, but much like Pastor Charles and I, um, he and Haggai, who Pastor Charles preached on last week, they were buddies. And so I was really excited about that. I was like, good job. We're tag teaming it, but he's not here to celebrate. (laughs) Um, So... The other thing you need to know about Zechariah is that he is talking to his audience post-exile. So they've come out of the exile. And so the last time that I was up here, we were talking about the Edomites who were taking advantage of God's people while they were experiencing the Babylonian exile. And our boy, Zech here, he, along with his audience, have just witnessed Cyrus the Great of Persia conquer... um, their captors. So he conquered the Babylonians and this new king, Cyrus, set them free. He allowed them to return to their cities and allowed them to rebuild their temple. So that's significant. And so this means, and this is the most exciting thing for me. So I found this amazing slide that I definitely geeked out about on Wednesday when I found it. And I was showing everybody in the office who would listen, whether they liked it or not. Um, But there's this thing, it looks like a periodic table, um, if we can throw that up on the screen. And so what you will notice, this thing is amazing, okay? So... Not only is it divided up by genre for you, okay, and the testaments, you have the Old Testament, then you have the New Testament, but 
If you look closely, you will notice that in the top left, you have the number of chapters in each book, and below it is the number of verses in the book, so I thought that was amazing. And then next, in the bottom, it shows the author of the book. So like, you don't even gotta go and search, it's right there for you. And then finally, in the top right, it has the date that the book was written. And I was like, this is amazing. I'm keeping this forever. It's gonna be my laptop screensaver. It's really good. So I went through and I added all these little thumbs up for you guys. So um, this is not only about which books were being written at the same time, as you can see in the Old Testament, there's a lot of crossover here. But there's also um, things being referenced as well. So Zechariah is the most quoted and referenced book in the New Testament. So chapters 9 to 14 are broken down into two sections that prophesy about the, uh, sorry, about the coming Messiah. So chapters 9 and 11 specifically talk about the first coming. And it gives us prophecies that Jesus would fulfill, such as the king riding in on a donkey, uh, the blood covenant. It talks about Judah, the tribe that Jesus' lineage is from. Um, as the cornerstone, we see 30 pieces of silver, which signifies the betrayal that was to come. And it shows the shepherd being killed. And so chapters 12 through 14 describe the second coming of Christ and the coming king being enthroned. And so I don't think you really know how I just could not contain myself. I was so excited, like I had just solved the mystery of life or world hunger, um, realizing how much all of these books overlapped. And so this is what I love about reading and studying scripture is the holistic view of the Bible that you begin to develop. And as you start to understand the nuancing and the depth and detail of God, it's incredible. And so the books in the Old Testament that are being talked or that are taking place at the same time and Zechariah is either referenced to or colleagues with are, and there should be another cool slide with a timeline for you. There is Haggai, Ezra, Nehemiah, First and Second Chronicles. Esther is taking place at the same time as this was during the Babylonian exile that she was taken to the king's court and Haman was trying to start a genocide. And then another super interesting fact that I had learned is that Zechariah um, continued his ministry until one day he was brutally murdered in the temple, which Jesus tells us in Matthew 23. And it was the exact site, the exact location where Abraham had been asked to sacrifice Isaac. If that's not incredible and like interesting, I don't know what is. I thought that was amazing. So here's the thing. Another, you're going to hear me say incredible or incredibly a lot. It's just, I have no other words to describe how amazing God is and his work is. But an incredibly significant observation that scholars have made when studying theology, and they teach you about the significance of literary devices, but in the prophetic, they also have certain devices of their own that they use. So there's allusion. Can you say allusion? There's midrash. Can you say midrash? And then there's pesher. Say pesher. And then there's parallelism. Very good. And so allusions are based on the knowledge that you already casually, indirectly, or by implication have that the whole audience would understand. 
And so pastors use this a lot when preaching. So for example, if I'm saying, I'm coming out of my own Egypt right now, what do we know about Egypt in the scripture? Somebody shout it out. There's bondage, there is hardship, there's the exodus. And so another way that we see illusion used today is that as Christians, we reject the idea that um, the Bible is out of date or that it needs to be updated um, or that things need to be added, changed, or subtracted from the Bible because God is the same today. He was the same yesterday, and he's the same tomorrow. And his work is still the same, so the ideas, the themes, and the principles are still applicable today. Then there's midrash, which comes from the verb darash, meaning to search again and again. And this is a direct quote. It's usually preceded by, for it is written, and it is both reaching retrospectively and projectively into the future. So that is, it speaks both to the past and, it spe- er, and then also to the present and to the future. As the author is saying, this is also applicable right now for the future or said situation. Then we have pesher, which is a claim that fulfillment is now. And so usually with the text, this was to fulfill. Um, And typically it's used when talking about messianic revelation or end time events um, or our life and our times. But this was not always super obvious to the original audience. So for example, the prophecies that we see in Zechariah, the people would not have understood But since we have perspective from being on the side of completion of those prophecies, it's more obvious to us. Then finally, we have parallelism. And so there are three forms of parallelism, but we're only going to focus on one today. You're very welcome. Um, But the one that I will be referring to is called synthetic parallelism. Can you say synthetic parallelism? Excellent. And so this is adding to an original concept where the sentences answer each other. And so I know um, over the next little bit, we're going to go through a lot of scripture. And if you're like, oh, Pastor Kristen, their preaching style is not my favorite. Then here is my activity, my challenge for you. As I preach, try and point out which uh, literary devices I'm using. It's going to be really fun for you guys. So... <laughs> In uh, in Zechariah's text, he records eight nighttime visions that he has. And so whether he organized his writing intentionally for a point or whether it was the Lord making a point as he gave those visions, here's what takes place. And this is what is so interesting to me is that each of these visions has a corresponding vision and it's set up first, last, second, second, last, third, third, last, fourth and fifth. So they're all kind of going from each side closer into each other. So what you need to know about these visions is that visions one and two are about God remembers and he has his vengeance. Visions three and four and five are all about God restoring, while visions six, seven, and eight are about God removing wickedness and lawlessness from among his people. Bless you. All right, so we start off in vision one. Oh, no. Guys, that was really scary. I almost deleted my sermon. That would have been bad. (laughs) 
All right. So visions one cor uh, corresponds to vision eight, as I mentioned. And so we find we start in one verse seven. And so what we see is horsemen um, and four horses who are sent to patrol the earth. And in vision eight found in six, one to eight, we see four chariots with the horses and they are bringing God's spirit in the direction of the four winds effectively all over the earth. And vision two uh, found in um, 1, 18 to 21, we see four craftsmen with their hacksaws and four horns. And this is representing the nations that scattered Judah. So all of the nations that went to war against them. Then what we see in vision seven, which is found in 5, 5 to 11, is two winged women. And they're carrying a woman away in a basket. And then they go and they drop her off in Shinar. And this place is representative of where the sin of Israel started. So effectively, they are throwing away wickedness from among the people of Israel. We move on to vision three in 2, 1 to 13. And it's about God's kingdom and his plan to restore and build up Israel and Judah once again. And this is depicted by a man coming with a measuring tape. Um, and he's trying to measure the walls of Jerusalem. And then there's an angel's response saying, run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of people and animals in it. And then vision six, uh, found in five, one to four was the earliest documented occurrence of, al uh, sorry, airmail. Do you guys get that? Cause it was a flying scroll. I thought that was a really good joke. Thank you so much for laughing. <laughs> But this represented the lawlessness and a curse to all who would still be untruthful and basically sin and break commandments. And then finally, we get to visions four and five, and they're back to back as we've paralleled and counted down. And vision four, found in chapter three, verse one to 10, is about the priesthood, noting the cleansing of the high priest, because there has been a trail of not great priests, um, and the promise of the servant branch, aka Jesus, uh, the true Messiah and the true high priest. While vision five in chapter four, verses one to 14, uh, talks about his witness throughout Israel and notes these golden lampstands, which we see in the tabernacle back in uh, Exodus through Deuteronomy, um, and also in the first and the second temples. And this was a huge part of the book of Revelation, actually. Um, and this is where we hear the word to Zerubbabel that um, this, the rebuilding of the temple would not be accomplished without 100% reliance on the Holy Spirit. And that these lampposts represented the eyes of the Lord and his watchfulness over the whole earth, resulting in blessing for his faithful people. And so there's a lot that gets covered in these visions, and it's like a total reset and purge. But that is exactly what has to happen. The book of Zechariah can be broken into two parts, or two major parts, rather, or themes. So there's rebuild the temple, as this was the source of God's presence, and it was the source of culture for the day. And then the second part is prophecy about the Messiah. And so where we're going to camp out today is the rebuilding of the temple. And so actually, interestingly enough, do you guys, 
well, no, you wouldn't know this, but downstairs in elementary and even in preschool today, they are learning about King Solomon building the first temple. And so how fitting is it that today I'm talking about the rebuilding of the temple? I thought that was the Lord's hand at work. I thought that was amazing. Anyway, so from early on, way back in Exodus through to Deuteronomy, we see a lot of instruction about the tabernacle. We see descriptors of exactly how God wanted it to be and the significance of setting aside a holy space for the Lord to dwell among his people. But this would also function as a place for culture. And so the four, those four out of five books in the Pentateuch, the first four or five books in the very beginning of the Bible, they're all about establishing and developing a unique culture uh, for the Hebrew people and having them be a set apart from other cultures, other kingdoms, and other people groups. And at this point in time, we have a theocracy. Can you say theocracy? And this means that God and the tribe of Levi, the priesthood, were the authority figures. But then we continue into the time of the judges and the kings, and they wanted a physical manifestation of a leader, and so they requested a monarchy from God. So God was like, fine, okay. And so the kings were responsible to hear from God and lead on his behalf. But under Saul, all of that went to trash because he let his selfishness and fear take over him. And then the Holy Spirit anointing that was upon him was removed from him. So then we get to David and he does an incredible job. But because of his bloodshed, as we remember, part of why Saul was jealous was, you know, Saul has slayed his thousands, but David his ten thousands. Um, and so because of all of David's bloodshed, and because of his lapse in judgment with Uriah and Bathsheba, God said that he would not be the one to rebuild the temple, or to build the temple, but his son Solomon would. And so that's how we get to the first temple. We then know that the temple gets built, which is great. Um, but then Solomon's sons destroy the unity that David and Solomon had worked so hard to establish between Israel and Judah. And there's a trail of many bad kings. There's a few ki uh, good kings mixed in there. But then we get to the time of all of these prophets. And we go through the first exile, the Assyrian captivity. And then we move into um, the temple gets destroyed somewhere between then and their return. And then they're entering into the second exile, which, as I mentioned, Cyrus overtook and then released them. And so we enter this moment in chapter 7 and 8 where a group of people come up to Zechariah and they say, and we're looking in chapter 7 verses 2 to 9, the people of Bethel had sent Sherezer and Rejem Malek together with their men to entreat the Lord by asking the priests of the house of the Lord Almighty and the prophets, should I mourn and fast in the fifth month as I have done for so many years? And then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. And so this is Zechariah speaking to the people. Ask all the people of the land and the priests, when you fasted and mourned in the fifth and seventh months for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And were you eating and drinking, or and when you were eating and drinking, were you not just feasting for yourselves? 
Are these not the words the Lord proclaimed through the earlier prophets when Jerusalem and its surrounding towns were at rest and prosperous and the Negev and the western foothills were settled? And so effectively what's being asked here is, should we continue to grieve and mourn over the destruction of the first temple as we have done for so many years? Or is the new kingdom at hand? Like, can we move on? So Zechariah... He can't be bothered with this question. And instead, he flips it on his head, or its head to ask, well, are you willing to become the people who participate in God's kingdom? What the, what the word of the Lord was way back then, and what I believe it is for us today, is God is saying, I'm about to do something new, but this will only succeed if you are, one, dependent on the Holy Spirit. And we see the Lord say this to Zechariah in 4 verse 6. He says, so he said to me, this is the word of the Lord to Zerubbabel. Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord Almighty. And so for the people of Judah right now, for the people there, it's not, for the temple to be successful, it can't be a result of political maneuvering. It's not about rebuilding your political capital. It's not about rebuilding just the town so you can get on with your life. This was a direct word to Zechariah, Joshua, and Zerubbabel, and to the people of Israel, that they, um, that as this had become their primary concern instead of what I'm about to say next. Are you willing and ready to become the people who participate in God's kingdom. I believe that the Lord would do something new in this next season. But Bethel, are you willing to be the people who participate in God's kingdom? And are you willing to depend on the Holy Spirit? As I've illustrated with that incredible chart that I uh, had found, um, is that the accounts of Zechariah are coinciding with a number of other books and accounts. And so where we're going next is actually from Nehemiah. He was an architect um, or a city planner responsible for rebuilding the city walls, whereas Joshua and Zerubbabel were responsible for merely, well, not merely, but solely for rebuilding the temple. But despite the fact that the Hebrew people had been released from exile, some people still believed that they shouldn't be. And so they tried to lure them out and kill them. And when that didn't work, they would plan to attack the builders as they were working. So Nehemiah, this genius man, in chapter 4 comes up with an idea. And so we're looking at uh, verses 13 to 18. And he comes up with this plan to equip the builders with both tools for building the walls in one hand and then in the other having a weapon for their protection so the scriptures say therefore i stationed some of the people behind the lowest parts of the wall um, at the exposed places posting them by their families with their swords spears and bows after i looked things over i stood up and said to the nobles the officials and the rest of the people don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome 
and fight for your families, for your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your homes. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it, we all returned to the wall, each to our own work. And from that day on, half my men did the work, while the other half were equipped with spears, bows, shields, and armor. The officers uh, posted themselves behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried the, the materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore a sword at his, time, or at his side as he worked. But the man who surrounded or who sounded the trumpet stayed with me. Guys, there's a lot of words. I'm so sorry. So friends, what God is speaking to us today is the importance of rebuilding his presence among his people. This memoir, this historic account out of Nehemiah is incredibly powerful in its imagery that you are to fight for your families, that we are to be equipped both with tools for building and weapons to attack against our very real enemy and that we are to do it together. This is an incredible image, a moment where God's people are going out not only to build up the kingdom of God, to build the walls of the city, the protection. But they're also going into a very real battle. And yet they fight alongside one another, mothers and fathers next to their children, generation alongside generation, digging new wells and redigging old wells of the generations before us. Because in, uh, or as it notes in Genesis 26, 12 to 33, which is not without intention that it's at the very beginning of our Bible, because it is one of the most important things that I think we forget about that there is incredible wisdom that comes from the generations before us and that we are to invest in the future. And so most of you haven't heard me talk about this because unless you serve in children's ministry um, or you've had the conversation with me, you don't get to hear from me very often. And so I want you to hear this today. Our children need you. Our children's ministry needs parents, grandparents, we need students, we need women, and we need men to step up and let them know how to be men and women of God. We live in a generation where not only is biblical literacy at an all-time low, but fatherlessness continues to climb. And we have, at present, maybe 10 men that serve in our children's ministry. Did you know that in North America, women outnumber men in the church five to one? It's no wonder that all these women are like, where are the godly men at? Because they're missing. We don't know where they are. And so in order to uh, address, you know, this lack of men in children's ministry, this means that who is teaching young men how to be men of God? If a child doesn't come from a Christian family, who is teaching them how to be a man or a woman of God? Let alone showing young women, young girls, what a man of God is supposed to look like. We desperately need more men and boys teaching, uh, and, sorry, we need more representation in our children's ministry and in our youth programs. Because we need men teaching other young men and young boys how to be men of God. 
listen, women are great. Let me tell you, as a woman in ministry, I, you best believe that I see how great women are and all that they bring to the table. But if we are going to address the epidemic of a lack of godly men in our churches... We need young men and old men to step up into these positions to propel that generational cycle forward so that we can have, you know, people like Gary teaching young men how to pray so that we can have other leaders in the church showing our children how to become a generation of faith like the people before us. The reality is, is you've heard this before, 80% of church kids who went through Sunday school, all the way through to youth, will leave the church when they go off to university or in their 20s. But only 30% will return in their 30s when they have children of their own. There's another statistic that says 80% of youth will leave the church when they go off to university with only 20% sticking to their faith. However, if that student had five core leaders who genuinely cared and invested in them, that statistic flips and 80% are retained and 20% are lost. So parents, singles in the church, grandparents, aunties, uncles, students, fight for your families. If we are going to build up a generation of faith and invest in the future, here is Zechariah's question that I'm pitching right back to you. God is saying, I am about to do something new. Are you willing and ready to become the people who participate in God's kingdom? I need to remind you that we can't do this alone. We are about to go and plant a church in St. Mary's, and we are about to rebuild the evangelical presence of God, a church that relies on the Holy Spirit and is ready to go to bat to fight against the spiritual darkness there. And we need a launch team, which means that training and preparation happens now. You need to be ready in due season. And due season is April, which means now is the time for you to train, get prepared, and learn so that you can be ready to do what God has for you to do in the next season. And so here is what I would ask you today. The people didn't know that this would be one of the last times they would hear from God in 400 years. How well are you listening for God's voice and direction? How well are you listening for the prompts of the Holy Spirit? How often are you seeking his hand and his favor upon your life instead of seeking his face and what he would have you do? And how you can serve him. And so I don't mean to suggest that children's ministry is the only place for you to serve. We desperately need your help for our Sunday and our Thursday ministries. And so, I mean, my email will be tossed up on there if you want to get involved. I would love for you to join our team. But ultimately, when you serve, it's not Pastor Kristen that you're serving. It's not Pastor Carlo, Pastor Melissa, Pastor Chad, Pastor Charles. It's the Lord. Scripture says that you are to do all that you do unto the Lord and to bring him glory, honor, and praise. And so I believe that there's a scripture from Colossians that we can throw up there as well. 
I forgot to include it in my sermon notes. I just alluded to it. <laughs> Did you guys get that one? That was good. I didn't even plan that. So whatever you do, work at it with all of your heart as working for the Lord, not for human leadership, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. So that's Colossians 3, 23 to 24. And so I ask again, Bethel, are you willing and ready to become the people who participate in God's kingdom? So I'm going to end off with this. In 2017, um, there was an event that I, my dad was working at. My dad does all of the things for districts. So overflow, he puts that on. He's at Brayside this weekend putting on Activate Camp where all of our students are. Um, and so he was doing this event called Time Out, and it's a pastor's retreat. And this year was the first time I got to attend as an actual pastor. So that was really exciting for me. But I remember in 2017, I was, I was a work in progress. I'm still a work in progress, but I'm not going to look very good in the next two minutes, okay? I'm going to let you know that now. Cover, pray for grace. I'm praying that over you for me. But <laughs> what ended up happening is there's this man who's speaking at Activate this weekend. His name's Mark Caldwell, and I really looked up to him. I still, I still do. Um, but when I was at timeout, he comes in and he says, hi, Bob, hi, Anthony, my dad and my brother. He says, hi, Lori, hi, Elena, my mom and my sister. He can never remember my name. This man always forgets, and I was like, how does he keep forgetting? Like, why doesn't he know who I am? And I was starting to get a little bit offended. I was like, God, why doesn't he know who I am? And I was really upset, genuinely. I was very upset. And so what ends up happening is my brother and my sister wanted to go swimming. So I took them to the pool. And I write my prayers to the Lord. And so I have this book at my house. And um, if you open up to the page where I was journaling, there's a little teardrop on the page. It's really good. And I was like, God, why doesn't Mark Colbum know who I am? <laughs> I was like, I go to the Bible college. He should know my name. I was like, he knows my family. Why can't he remember who I am? And I was genuinely very distressed about this. And then what comes next? Well, Kristen, what have you done worth being known for? Why, why would he have a reason to know who you are? You haven't done anything. And that wasn't a, you suck, you do nothing. That was, Kristen, check your entitlement. Why should this person know who you are? Like, I can't go off of the successes and the networking of my father. I haven't done anything to earn what he's done. And so in that moment, I was like, you're right, Lord. And it just, like, left me, that moment, this poor me mentality of why people don't know who I am. This false expectation that I had. And in that moment, I was like, okay, Lord, well, I don't have much in my hands. I don't really know what I'm gifted or skilled at, but I'm going to choose to serve. I'm going to choose that when you need somebody, I will be ready and willing to do what you would have me to do, even if it's not convenient for me. I'm going to choose to be a daughter of the Lord who is ready to serve and ready for whatever the Lord calls me to do. 
And so we often get the, yes, you are the Lord of our salvation. You saved us part, right? But not the, you are Lord of my life. I die to myself part, right? Can I just suggest that sometimes serving is about choosing to serve? Choosing that I'm going to use what God has given me because everything that we have is on loan from Christ to honor him. They are our talents. Don't bury them. We use them to build the kingdom, to build the presence of God in your homes, your life, and in your community. And so there's one last thing that I wanted to do today. We have a number of friends who are leaving for university and for college this week. And so I think that it's important that we cover them in prayer. Yes? All right. So prayer team and Pastor Chad and Melissa, would you come on up to the front? We're going to pray for the kids next week, but today is going to be a moment just for students going off to university as lots of them are leaving this week. This is their last Sunday. And so whether you're going to school in person, online, local, or far away, um, so that also being said, young adults who are going off to school, I'm sorry to do this, but not really because we want to send you off with a covering of prayer and lots of love. Uh, But would you come on up to the front so that we can pray for you? And so families and uh, parents and friends of these uh, students, would you come on up um, so that we can pray for you? And so just as a point of information, as people start to wake their way up, or perhaps not, (laughs) uh, listen, Gen Z, millennials, we really don't like being called upon. And so I'm sorry, but okay, we'll just pray for you from your seat. That's fine. Um, Just so you guys know, we have our young adults farewell pool party potluck tomorrow. And so if you're between the ages of 18 to 29, uh, send me a message and we will get the information for you for tomorrow. We have a little gift for everybody that's leaving. Um, but anyway, I'm going to get sappy with you guys tomorrow, um, but nobody else here needs to see me cry. So I'm going to pray, and then um, if any of our pastors have a word of prayer they want to share, then we're going to do that. And then you guys are going to go out, and you're going to rock the school year, okay? All right. So, Father God, I thank you for each of the young adults that we have in our ministry. God, I thank you for how it had just continued to grow, God, and that you provided a space for them to um, experience their faith and grow in relationship with you. And so, Father, we pray right now for these students as they go off to school this next year. Father, we pray for your protection over their mind. We pray for protection over their emotions. We pray for protection over their physical bodies, God, and, Father, over their spirit. Jesus, we just finished talking about how so many people leave their faith when they go off to school. And so, Jesus, we pray for your protection right now, God. Father, I pray for a church family, um, for wherever they end up going to school, God, that would just welcome them with open arms, God, and that they would feel so loved and that they belong there. Jesus, we pray that as they go into these new places, um, God, that you would bring godly friendships to them. Father, that you would bring a good group of friends that would help them to navigate this next season and whatever 
whatever it looks like. There's lots of really great things that can happen when they're in university, and there's going to be some challenging moments too. And so, Father, we pray your peace, your comfort. We cast off anxiety for anybody that's afraid to go. Jesus, we pray that you are going to do a new and a fresh thing in their lives as well. Father, we ask that you would bless them as they go, Father, that they would remember, they would hold on to your word, Jesus, Father, that they would cling close to you, Father, they would walk with you for each of their days, Father. Jesus, we ask that you would bring blessing upon them, God. Father, give them wisdom. Father, bring wise counsel into their lives as they move into these new atmospheres. Jesus, we just pray that you would hold them close, God. And Father, we just pray that you, as they begin this next season, Father, that they would trust you. Jesus, we know that in in starting something new, there's a lot of excitement. There's a lot of fear. But there's also a lot of unknown. And maybe it's the first year they're going to school, or maybe it's the last year and people are feeling a little bit like, "Uh, I'm getting really close to the end. I don't know what comes next. Jesus, I pray that you would remind them that you are present, that you are with them, that you walk with them, you have a good plan for their lives. And Father, that you are not going to abandon them. You haven't in the past, and you're not going to do that right now. And so, Father, I just pray that your presence, your Holy Spirit would commission them and send them off, God. Father, that they would be loved. And Father, that they know that this church is their home. And that we are so excited, and we support them, and we pray for them, and we encourage them. But God, we also believe in them and what God, you have called them to do. The divine appointment and anointing on their lives. So, Father, we put them into your hands. We trust you with them. And we pray that through their lives and through this sermon today, that you would receive all honor, all glory, and all praise forever and ever. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Kristen. Thanks for checking out this week's message, Bethel Church Podcast. We hope that it's blessed you and encouraged you, and that you come back and check out next week's message as well. 